You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. This is Jenny Allen, and you are listening to the Made for This podcast. Thanks to HelloFresh for supporting Made for This. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MadeForThis16 and use code MadeForThis16 for free meals across seven boxes and three free gifts. Today on Made For This, we will be reading Philippians 3, verses 3 and 4, and 7 and 8. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says this, don't put confidence in the flesh. We are those who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Jesus, that that there is a separate thing that we're going to put our hope in, and it isn't our own ability, it isn't our own knowledge, it isn't wisdom or our own counsel. And so what we bring to those friendships when they're healthy and when they're life-giving is we bring God to those friendships, that we actually know that the greatest thing we can do for each other is push each other to Jesus, that that rather than give great advice, rather than set this expectation of, hey, let me solve your problems and fix your things, that builds codependency. But when we push each other to Jesus and we say, hey, let me point you to the one that actually can solve these problems, that is when you start to see supernatural life change. Uh, the first Bible study I ever wrote was called Stuck. The places we get stuck and the God who sets us free. And gosh, it resonated with a lot of people. And I remember the first time I taught it, I taught it in my home church. I had no idea it would go on to be published. And I just knew that I needed it and the people I knew needed it. And so we sat in a little cafeteria of our church plant. And there were about 150 women, all different ages that came. And I noticed I had these conversation cards, which all of my studies have. And I noticed that what was happening was we were all complaining the whole time. <laughs> we would ask these very deep questions that were important, like, when do you get jealous? And if you get angry, why do you get angry? But it caused, it was vulnerable. And so people were blown away by Bible study actually bringing about this authenticity and vulnerability. And yet I was so dissatisfied with the result because I was thinking, ah, I just, you know, basically everybody walked away and was like, I need counseling, you know, this pulling up and out. And uh, for the first time for a lot of them, of the issues that they've been walking with potentially for a long time. And and hey, there is power in that. I noticed a second thing that worried me in that first study. People started to, when they would share all their problems, they would start to counsel each other. They would tell each other, this is 
how I handle that. This is how my Aunt Margaret handled it. This is, here's some essential oils and here, here's, you know, the names of, you know, good play therapist. And, and I was like, noticing all this, I was like, wait, hey, Jesus, like we're in a Bible study, people. And so I completely rebuilt the way I did Bible study after that. I, I put scripture in the center. In fact, I made a lot of ground rules like we've talked about before here. I've made some ground rules and we put it in the center. And you, every time that you started a small group, even if you'd been in it four times, five times, you had to read the ground rules together. And the ground rules were simple. The ground rules were, and are still, if you do one of my Bible studies, you know, and let me focus on these two. One is that we don't counsel each other with human wisdom, that we point to the word of God. And then I would give a scripture each week. And I said, okay, everything's got to come back to that scripture. And it was amazing because it was awkward and it was hard and it didn't feel natural to not counsel each other. We love to fix each other's problems with as fast a methods as we can. First Corinthians 2 talks about this. Paul's talking about here, he says, hey, there's a lot of human wisdom, but it is completely different than supernatural, spiritual life change that God wants to bring in our lives. Now, I believe this too. All truth is from God. If it is true, then it is from God. So there is something useful and helpful about counseling. There's something useful and helpful about medicine. For goodness sakes, I love essential oils. I, I'm not dogging any of it. I'm just saying when we go to spiritual people, about spiritual problems and we don't give spiritual answers, we're missing the best part. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at what does it look like to believe supernatural things, spiritual truths that go into our souls, not just solve our physical ailments, not just solve our emotional issues, but actually go into us and solve everything that God built within us. The awesome part about that is you get off the hook. Like I realized, and I think actually everybody loved it when they started, when they shifted and started doing this in Bible study, everybody was relieved because we realized that, you know what, our answers can only go so far. Pointing people to scripture and to God is actually really helpful. It requires faith. It requires believing that God is the answer to our problems. And it shifts from a natural answer to a supernatural answer. And that one's scarier to give and harder to receive because we're a little bit scared. It's kind of like, I'm gonna put my foot on this water like Peter and I'm gonna trust that you're gonna provide and that I'm not gonna sink. And then when you do, when you see him provide, it's like, yes, but there's no way to know that he will provide until you step, until you're on the water. And so pushing people to God is pushing them to faith and pushing them to believe that God can and will move into the places that we're so stuck. And gosh, I mean, that's what we want for people. We want people to be spiritually free. You know that Jenny and I both love cooking with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MadeForThis16 and use code MadeForThis16 for free meals across seven boxes and three free gifts. You get to choose from 55 weekly options that have pre-proportioned high quality ingredients picked at peak ripeness. So the food that you get from HelloFresh is fresh quality produce from the farm to your door in less than a week. We do a ton of grilling and so it's nice to bust out the grill on a nice warm evening here in Texas and make dinner from HelloFresh's cookout collection with recipes like melty Monterey Jack burgers. What's amazing too about HelloFresh is that you can update your delivery address and you can send your HelloFresh to your vacation destination with just a click. So guys, like when you go on your beach vacations or road trips or traveling this summer and you just don't want to think about food, send your HelloFresh to where you're going. And there you go. Three amazing gourmet meals right at your doorstep. 
I am so excited because on Monday, one of the meals that I chose was the roasted chickpea Caesar salad. It is one of their Hall of Fame meals, and it's one of the top favorites here in our house. So go to HelloFresh.com slash MadeForThis16 and use code MadeForThis16 for free meals across seven boxes and three free gifts. What I want to focus on today is the way that you have swam upstream in the relationships in your family. This is a passion for you. In fact, you just wrote a book about it. It is something you are bleeding and living really beautifully. So let's talk about your conviction in general to raise your family differently and to pursue a different type of relationship in your family. Oh yeah, that's such a good question. I let's see where to start. Yeah, because the way we because we we do try to lean in and I like how you said it, uh, swim upstream the way we do family, but that bleeds out into what I've noticed is what we see theologically with how we kind of want to orchestrate the family. Then actually bleeds out to everything from friendships to uh, workplace environment and and all these different things. And one thing, what it is, it was really a mentor about five six years ago who had spent some serious time in Israel, done some work over there, was around a lot of Jewish families and essentially had an epiphany. He kind of noticed these Jewish families were operating different than a lot of the evangelical families he grew up around. The fathers seemed to be more present. They seemed to have bigger families. Not that that's more holy or anything of that regard, but there was just children all over. The, the, these fathers tend to have a vision. They seem to be casting and taking intentionality for the story that God wanted to tell through their family. And so the more he would kind of poke and prod on a lot of them and have conversations over the years when he lived over there, they all came back to Abraham and they all came back to Genesis. And so he then was always just struck with, well, that's interesting because we have those same parts of the scripture in our Bible too, right? And the more, again, he would poke and prod, he would say, and I've talked to you about this, you've heard this, that yeah, it's kind of hidden in plain sight, right? That there's that in the West, the water we're swimming in, that thing we need to go upstream against is individuality, right? Like that is actually, we have set up a world that the goal has been individualism, meaning like the individual is the highest ideal, their freedom, their rights, their satisfaction, their desires, the fulfillment of everything the individual wants. That is how we set up our society to work the last two or 300 years post-enlightenment, post-industrial revolution, and some other really huge cultural shifts. Now, that had some amazing benefits, right? You get some of the democratic levels of politics that we have that are amazing. You get some of the individual rights that have beaten anyone else in human history. So the, the blessing of it is absolutely insane and incredible. Yet, what started to happen is I feel like we're starting to live through that erosion now where what happens is you know, if the individual is the ultimate thing, then the thing that can really hurt the individual is any type of limits, right? Limits of work. So, you know, limits of religion, limits of community, limits of where you live, which by the way, that sounds kind of like the millennial problem, right? I don't want to work the same place more than five minutes. I don't want to live the same place more than five minutes. And like I said, we're, we're living the logical conclusion of how we've actually set up our ideals to work. The, the thing I like to kind of encourage my peers with is, do you realize that that kind of game ends with you dying alone? Like you can, you can actually have everything you want. You can live an individualistic dream, but then it turns quickly into a nightmare and you die alone because that's where it leads, right? You will have no more limits, but you will have also no one around you. You will have no relationships because limits are actually, in my opinion, one of the avenues to true freedom and to true blessing and to true goodness. So then we're in this individualistic mindset. That's just, that's just the water we're swimming in. We don't even realize it, but you go to Genesis and again, it's funny, right? We do this to our theology. We always talk about how the image of God is us individually and personally, and that's the blessing and all that stuff because we've kind of westernized 
the text, but when you really look in Genesis, what God's trying to do is God creates these image bearers, so plural, right? Not just this individual. And these image bearers are meant to bring his goodness and his beauty and his blessing into the world, kind of kind of continue this God project that he spun into existence, but purposely didn't need our help, but purposely left it undone so that we could kind of co-labor with him. And when you bring these image bearers into the picture, he says, okay, this is actually a very, 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 very big project. You're going to need a lot of help. So he first makes them man and woman. Then he says, you're going to need a lot of help. Now you so have a lot of babies. And then he actually gives them a mission, go create, subdue, bring order out of chaos. And so what we see, I think, from the very first page of scripture is God's intent God's plan A for bringing blessing into the world was actually a multi-generational family team on mission. Now, it's not the only plan. Mm. There's a bunch of other plans, but that is that. So, Jeff, you know we were just in Rwanda. We took Cooper back, and it was what you're saying was lived out there current day, modern day, living in village, Mm. everyone being known. We couldn't go places with our Rwandan friends that they didn't know somebody, And there was something about, they understood this. In fact, Cooper was in a village meeting some kids and we were, we were saying, ask them some questions, get to know them. And he joked, he was like, mom, that would be like stalking someone. (laughs) And, and this pastor, Pastor Fred, who's Rwandan, got on his level and he said, Cooper, we don't live that way. We live invading each other's Mm -hmm. lives. We live asking each other deep questions and, and knowing each other. We live as if we live in a village and we care about each other. And I just, I thought, oh my gosh, like even today, like this isn't something from generations ago. This is something that I think in many cultures today, they live this so much better that they aren't individuals, that they are a community. And I think we're aching for this. This is the logical conclusion of what we've been building towards, even to the point of like our home infrastructure, right? Like it's not a coincidence that you can go back to the turn of the you know 20th century and all of a sudden, you know, front porches stopped showing up in, you know, home architecture. What starts showing up more? Home backyards. What starts showing up? More square footage inside the home. And it's interesting that we don't actually believe that that stuff actually affects us. Or by the way, you can go back to the Sears catalog. Do you know the actual, like we were a multi-generational family living country, meaning like, you know, grandparents, parents, and kids all lived in one home, single, married, et cetera, all lived in one home until about the turn of the 20th century. And do you know what changed that? Not particular needs, not for some really good moral reason or not for because, you know, someone was introverted and wanted to create another home next door. It was actually can be traced back to the Sears catalog. So again, capitalism drove this one where there was now like you needed more customers, right? Like we want to we want to do these kind of mail by order homes and we want to sell all these homes, but we have no customers. Oh, I have an idea. Let's actually do some marketing to actually convince those people that just got married. They actually need to move out of that multi-generational house and they need a new house. And if we do that, we can make a lot more money. Boom, all of a sudden, 100 years later, and we're basically all sitting in thousands of square feet for three of us by ourselves. We don't know our neighbors. We don't know our street. We don't know our church. Oh man, sorry. I can keep going on and on. But Dude. anyways, uh, but it's true, right? Like, like this stuff matters. Here's what I'm trying to say. Space matters. Our neighborhood matters. Yeah. How we actually orchestrate a home or how we orchestrate our dorm room or how we orchestrate anything matters because it actually facilitates or hurts relationship. And I think if we think through that in a really beautiful way, God would do something really cool with it. Okay. So let's talk really practically. What does it look like? Let's, what does it look like for you? What does it look like for people listening? How do they make better choices to facilitate community in their lives? Oh, man, there's so many different ways. Uh, uh, Off the tail end of what I just said, on the really practical side of just like your dorm room or your home, just like get out of it, like leave it. 
right? And I mean, not, not, not go somewhere, but just like go out in the front yard, go out in the street. So one thing that we do that's very particular, but intentional is like, we barely play in our backyard. We almost always only play in the front street in our front yard. And we've gotten toys for the kids, whether that's scooters and whether that's a basketball hoop, just to put us in the front yard more. Why? Because there's so many natural kind of random passerby connections that have happened over the last two years that I can immediately trace of stronger relationships that have been what can be traced all the way back to us just hanging out in the front yard first. Now, that's a really easy practical example. Dorm room, same thing. Just go into shared space. That's basically what it is. Mm. Go into shared space, go into shared communal places, or if you have a private place like your dorm room, like your apartment downtown, like a home, invite people into it, right? I I think I sometimes struggle in Christian community where we always want to go disciple people at Starbucks for an hour when it's like, no, no, invite them to your dinner table. Now, 99% of us don't want to do that because we want to actually be cleaner and look more moral, which we do at Starbucks, right? We don't look awesome when we're getting really frustrated with our wife at the dinner table and we're not really disciple. We don't think we're discipling that well when we're, you know, snapping at our kids. But that's real life. That's act, like you got it. Like, are we? Do we believe we're actually free in Christ? Do we actually believe we're free in Jesus, and that everything is covered, and that He's growing us day by day in His likeness, in His image? And if that's true, then you can invite people into that orbit, right? Uh, of you, of you doing that journey. So I would say, people, my generation, one thing you need to do that's really been really helpful to us and transformative is stop hanging out with only people that are you, right? Stop hanging out with people that are your age, that like the same thing, that do the same things. And basically what I mean by that in short is go pursue older, godlier people. Like to me, I just think it's hilarious that we all want to just like reinvent the wheel or all want to just like go step on landmines and blow our lives up when you can easily just go talk to someone who's 50 and say, where are the landmines? How about you help me not step on them? Uh, that seems to just that seems like that's going to save or shave 30 bad years off my life, in my opinion. Well, and Jeff... We, you even did that with us. Like Zach and I, we go to dinner in Austin when you're in town one time. And I'm just thinking, oh, great. We'll see our good friends and eat Mexican food. And you sit down and you're like, we have questions. <laughs> and like you pulled them out as if we were being recorded. It was awesome. I was like, oh my gosh, like they really want to oh, grow yeah. and learn from us. And it made us feel so valued. And it really brought about such a life-giving conversation. Like we walked away and we just, we were so inspired from the whole conversation because you took it deeper and you were intentional. And I think that, you know, let's not take for granted that that those questions perhaps come easy for you, but they don't for everybody else. So maybe talk for just a minute about those, you know, yes, put yourself in a space, but then I know this is awkward. You got to talk to somebody. You got to actually initiate a great conversation. (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah. I would say there's a couple of things here. Well, one I would say too, is we have to also push back against the lie of like that. the So like this is kind of a mentor mentee relationship or like older godlier wisdom and discipleship. There's this lie, I think, or this, this, we think the way it's supposed to work is that the older person is supposed to invite us in. I personally, I've just never seen that go that well or happen that many times. And what I mean by this is I think the best game to play is where the younger person in the relationship pursues the older. That just, and invites them in and gives them a seat at the table of honor. Because I think that's what scripture says, right? That, that older, wiser people are people to be honored, right? I think again, in the West, we have this idea of like, you know, the peak human is a 24 year old strong buff, you know, entrepreneur who's maybe a millionaire by age, you know, 25 or whatever. Like we have, we have like a youth lust in our culture, but scripture seems to put the old person, right? The 70 year old, the 90 year old, the 80 year old who's walked with Jesus for 50 years as the, the peak ideal of a human of wisdom of gray hair is actually the, what it means in an image of that. And so I would say, first of all, pursue that. I think it's the young person's job to pursue that. And just some practical advice, by the way, when trying to get into a space of kind of get some wisdom and extract help and mentorship, don't 
like try to make their life tougher, try to make their life easier. Meaning don't like intimidate them by saying, will you be my mentor? I think that's literally one of the worst questions ever. That's almost like the Christian Amen. college version of like, you, you go to Starbucks, you know, on the first date and you say, will you marry me? Right. right. It's like, no, no, those don't go well. <laughs> so right. True. Like just literally don't ever say that word. Right. What I would say is like, can I, can I buy you something? Can I file, can I buy you some lunch or can I file some papers for you at work? Or can I give you any type of value? And while we're doing that, can I ask you some questions? Boom. You do that nine out of 10 times. It usually goes really, really well. Hey, so kind of offer them yes. value and then ask them and then say, can I ask you questions? And that seems to get the job done. Right. Yes. Um, okay. So then practically, once you get in front of those people, I think just like get to know them as a person. I think you're not trying to extract data. You're trying to learn and you're trying to, you know, grow in Jesus. So I think that's what I always ask is I always just point it and focus it there. Like, hey, tell what's, you know, whatever season I'm in, I'm guessing they were in at some level from a work standpoint, a marriage standpoint, if they're married and I'm, I'm married, you know, whatever it is. And so just, I just usually ask them questions. What was it like when you were 30? You know, when you first got your first job, what, what was the one of the most difficult things you had done? When you hit a bump in the road, what do you do? I think those type of questions, I don't know. They just seem to kind of lead to really good places, you know? know that you guys will love the Find Your People study guide that has streaming video and just goes even deeper into the scripture and the topics that Jenny talks about in the book. What we always recommend is that you start with the book, do the book club kit with us, go along that journey through the book, and then when you're done with the book club, do the Bible study. It's actually two different resources, but they go together. And it really is a whole experience that your group can do, you can do individually, that can help you build deep community in a really, really lonely world. The Find Your People Bible Study is available now at all retailers. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for another episode of the Made for This Podcast.